So we're going to talk today about mercy. You're going to hear this word. I think I did a little count in my manuscript like 150 times. Um, I don't usually start with canned stories, but this leads us in well. One time there was a woman. She hired a, an artist to paint her portrait. And when he finished it, she wasn't very happy with it. She complained that the portrait didn't do her justice. And the artist laughed and said, lady, you don't need justice. You need mercy. And that's what we've just been singing about, that we need mercy. And so we're going to walk through just kind of three streams today and spend our our majority of our time at the end. Very simple summary, we need mercy. We've already been singing about that for quite some time. Secondly, sort of a swing idea, mercy begets mercy. Mercy received begets mercy given. And then finally, where we'll spend most of our time is how can we become ones marked by mercy? In our lives, we've traveled a lot and around the world and people around the world, everybody universal, I think, have this inbuilt sense that they need mercy. And so people do extraordinary things to try to earn mercy. Ironically, Philippines, where we lived for many years, there were the flagellantes, the the guys that uh, uh, whipped their backs until their backs were bloody so that that would pay for their sin that they had committed the previous year, and then they could freely commit more sin the next year, trying to get some kind of mercy. Or I remember being in Haiti, in rural Haiti, and coming upon these little shrines, and there would be some flags uh, planted and some dead chickens, and it was something to the voodoo spirits to get mercy and protection. And I remember in when we lived in North Africa, when we first arrived there, it was hot season. It was up in the uh, well up in the 110s or so, and it was Ramadan. And so these people were fasting, and we were amazed as we'd see carpenters and people out working hard, and they couldn't drink or eat anything all day in that heat to try to achieve mercy. And I think the most vivid example I remember was when we were in India. We were in the holy city of Varanasi, and the, the Ganges River, Mama Ganja, flows through there. And I remember we rode, as we rode, first arrived from the airport, we were in a taxi, and I had heard that this river was special, and... The taxi driver says, oh, yes, the water of these rivers are totally pure and they can purify us. But when we got there, we went on a, a boat ride and found out that the water is so polluted, no life can exist inside that water. And yet you still see streams of people washing their clothes, bathing, uh, brushing their teeth, drying cow patties, and then taking ritual baths in this water to achieve mercy, to achieve some kind of Purity. So all of us are mercy seekers. It's part of who we are. We all desperately need mercy. And in some sense, we must uh, understand that. So what I'm going to do here at the beginning, I'm just going to go through some passages of Scripture without really making much comment. Because I stand before God, depraved, incurable, hopeless, and hurting, ever in need of mercy. And so we all desperately and daily Need mercy. And so instead of like going through the theology of mercy or something, I'm going to just read some passages and I want you to just let these wash over you as we just uh, sang about this as well. So David wrote, Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am frail. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are shaking. I am absolutely terrified. And you, Lord, how long will this continue? Relent, Lord, rescue me, deliver me because of your faithfulness. 
And so we need mercy. We need mercy because of our pain, because we hurt. The Canaanite woman came to Jesus and said, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. The father whose boy had seizures came to Jesus also. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. The blind man at Jericho, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began uh, began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of, of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he was desperate and he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then the ten lepers, they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And Baron Elizabeth, the mother of John, it speaks of her that the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. We need mercy because we all hurt and we're all in pain. We all suffer in different ways. We also need mercy for our sin. And we usually focus on this. And so in Micah, the prophet says, he will again have mercy on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 51 is that psalm where David is praying to God and confessing his sin of adultery and of murder. And just a little paraphrase of that psalm. Part of that psalm from a uh, clergy in, uh, of St. Andrew of Crete. And so he wrote, David once showed us the image of true repentance in a psalm he wrote exposing all that he had done. And David said, be merciful, merciful to me and cleanse me, he wrote. For against you only I have sinned, the, the God of our fathers. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. I have distorted your image, O Savior, and broken your commandments. The beauty of my soul has been spoiled and its light extinguished by my sins. But have pity on me and, in David's words, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And so we say with him, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. Return. Return, uncover what is hidden. Say to God who knows all things, you are my only Savior and know my terrible secrets. Yet in David's words, I cry to you, be merciful to me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. And we can continue. Uh, By its very nature, we know that mercy is undeserved. God has the power to grant mercy, but he doesn't have to. It's grace-based. So Psalm 56, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in thee my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of thy wings I take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. So we beg for mercy. We plead for mercy. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes toward heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the watching of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Our plea for mercy is a request that God delights to hear and grant. He's our father, our generous father. And so simply Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and to help in time of need. So I, you, we stand ever before God in need of mercy, 
Not just at that point when we came to know Christ as our Savior, but daily. Daily because we're weak. Daily because we're sinful. We fail. Mercy is at the very heart of the gospel. It's the gospel we received, but the gospel we continue to receive and believe daily. So the, so the gospel both defines mercy for us in the way God showed mercy through his son, but it also unleashes for us the power to show it to others. So we can never be, never expect to be marked by mercy if we do not perpetually, if we're not convinced of our daily need for mercy. Uh, there was a um, early hero in American history by the name of Thomas Hooker. He was lived up in Connecticut. He was known as the father of constitutional liberty, but he was also a, a, a Puritan preacher. And as he lay dying, he lived in Hartford. And the members of his flock gathered around him. And they were trying to comfort him. And they said, Brother Thomas, yours has been a life of great achievement and piety. Now you go to claim your reward. And his only comment was, I go to claim mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me. And so if this is our posture, that we're ever in need of mercy, we realize that Mercy begets mercy. Mercy that we receive then begets mercy that we can then distribute, give, show to others. And so here we're going to walk through a story, a story of Jesus, really one of the most delightful stories in the New Testament, Mark 5. And I want you to open to Mark 5 with me. And in this story we're going to walk, that that we'll walk through, we see two images of mercy. We see one who is desperate to receive mercy. And then we also see Jesus who's eager to give it. And so here in Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 25, just a, a little background. Jesus had been across the Sea of Galilee. He had done kind of a delicate little piece of ministry over there when he cast that crowd of demons out and, and threw them into the hogs and they ran into the sea and were drowned, and then it wasn't appreciated so much, so he's invited to leave. They hop on a boat for a few-hour drive across the lake, and immediately as they set foot, it says here on, on the shore, he's interrupted by another crowd. And this time, it's uh, led by Jairus, whose daughter is about to die. So before he's had a chance to drop his backpack at home or change his clothes or something like that, he's rushed off to another divine appointment to show mercy. But that's not all. According to Mark, he's, as you remember, he's in this crowd. He's being bumped. He's being touched. He's crowded all along. And then he's interrupted in the midst of an interruption. (laughs) On the way to try to heal this girl, something else happens. You remember that? You remember the story? So this this, uh, woman that we'll read about here, she's desperate for mercy. And she's an example to us of how we should be before God. And so Mark chapter 5, we'll start in verse 25. Or just before, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. Now, the Old Testament in Luke, in Leviticus, in the law, it speaks of a woman who has a bloody discharge. We don't know exactly the nature of that, whether it was normal, whether it was abnormal. But with this woman, it was abnormal. It was now a a disease of some sort. She's declared impure. 
So this woman was impure. And in fact, anything, anyone she touched would defile that other person for the rest of that day. She was not even supposed to mingle with crowds because, of course, she could bump people and then that would make them impure. And if this woman wasn't too old, this bloody discharge probably made childbirth impossible. We don't know for sure. If she had a husband, he would have continually been unclean living with her. Or likely he would have divorced her in that culture. And so this woman is desperate. She Think of her life for 12 years, alienated. She couldn't hold a baby. She couldn't cook food for others. She likely lived by herself. And she had lived this way for 12 years. Incurably sick, socially alienated, religiously defiled, and now and poor, and now desperate. And she comes up behind Jesus. She sees her chance. And it says in verse 28... For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made uh, well. And the the tense of this verb, she said to herself, is ongoing. She was saying to herself over and over, if I can just touch him, if I can just touch him, if I can just touch his clothes. And you can see her in that crowd trying to get up the, the energy and get up the courage and hoping nobody would notice and hoping Jesus Jesus wouldn't notice. And she could just grab. She wasn't in doubt about the healing. She was in doubt about whether or not she could catch up with him and grab his clothes or grab the, the tassel. So her perseverance and her willingness to be embarrassed in front of this crowd, she could have been outed. Um, it showed her desperate faith, her desperate sense of need that we should all have for God's mercy, for Jesus' mercy. We should see ourselves in this woman. Desperate for mercy, not just for salvation, but daily for our needs. So here's Jesus, steps out of the boat, probably tired, not a lot of sleep that night, crowded. And then somebody grabs him and he feels the power go out. He's willing to sacrifice his private space. Uh, he, uh, he did seek privacy at times, but even then he was often interrupted. His norm was living a life that was, was not private. He didn't have personal space because he was one who showed mercy. His schedule was largely not his own. And he turns to this woman and realizes what's happened. And he says in verse 29, And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garment? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? Well, Jesus knew there was someone. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is the only time that Jesus uses this term for daughter. So he turns and he outs her. (laughs) He exposes her. Uh, His first word, though, is one of comfort. He realized that he had caught her. And she comes up and she's in fear and she's trembling. She's afraid that the crowd would be angry because she had defiled many of them in the process. She was afraid that he might be angry for the interruption of an interruption. And this is a busy man. He's important and I can't bother him. And so his recognizing her and pointing her out, it's the last thing she wanted, but it's part of what she needed in mercy. It was an act of mercy designed to declare her now clean. Everybody would now know she's healed, she's clean, and to commend her faith, her desire, her desperate dependence on him for mercy. 
I mean, as I try to imagine this scene, it's just kind of a delight to imagine the joy of this woman, the surprise of the child, I mean, of the whole crowd, the delight of her family and friends who had suffered with being away from her all these years. So he delivered her from this disease in his mercy, from her shame, from her alienation. And now she could re-engage in relationships and community. So now she was ready to be a mercy show her herself. She received mercy. It qualified her now to begin serving other people in mercy. So Jesus wasn't ashamed to be associated with the unclean as he showed mercy. So we have this great mercy shower here also in Jesus and his example. And his, this example of true incarnational ministry, being in the way of people, being bumped by people, being crowded and touched and impacted by their pain, ultimately ready to bear their brokenness in mercy on the cross in his death. So rather than merely, it's given us an example, and this is where we're heading now. Rather than merely support the mercy ministries of others from afar, Jesus and we with Jesus should be involved in mercy. He lived in the midst of need. He looked for it. He let it find him because he was in the way. And so we move to how to become ones marked by mercy. So if this is our basic stance before God, completely and always in need of mercy, then our stance before people should also be our our default, you might say, stance before people should be ready to show mercy. It should be when people knock on our door, as it were, we send mercy to answer the door first. Compassion and love. Mercy should be the first that answers. How can we become people known as full of mercy, both as individuals and as, as a church, as a congregation as a whole? And, and I, when, when Justin asked me to preach on this, I thought this is really ironic because this is definitely not my gifting. Some of you are gifted in mercy. It's like you enjoy this. This is, you see it all over. You reach out, you go. There's, then there are the rest of us. And mercy is just not on the tip of my tongue. I'm ready to teach. I'm ready to to speak. I'm ready to do other types of things, but not show mercy. And so this was an excellent excellent exercise for me to think through. And what I'm going to do here is something I I can't remember ever having done before. I'm going to give you a whole slew of ideas, a whole whole bunch of uh, thoughts to help us Not just occasionally show mercy, but become people of mercy, marked by mercy. So once we see and and constantly see our need for mercy and constantly beg and plead to God for mercy and repent of our failure to show mercy, then we can take some deliberate steps, some intentionality, as Pastor Justin said, to, to grow into merciful people. God wants this for all of us. We've been, we begin consciously, if we see the need to become merciful, then we consciously start practicing it until it becomes part of us. There's this principle in, in scripture of the way we can change from being, say, an angry person to a kind person. Or a hateful person to a loving person, an unmerciful person to a merciful person is by restructuring our lives so that mercy is part of our lady's schedule. And then it works its way back to become part of who we are. 
there's a writer named Os Guinness, and he points out this principle of sanctification of growth. And he quotes some very interesting authors here, none of them Christians as far as I know, but this principle of practicing something until it becomes part of us. He writes, quote, one Aristotelian theme. Or, okay, we're starting with Aristotle here. Is Aristotle's insistent that, insistence that character is a combination of two elements. The right, I see what the right thing is to do, and then the routine. is doing that right thing over and over until it becomes part of me. And then there's another uh, man, Alexis de Tocqueville. He's a French, he was a French writer back in the 1700s. He has this celebrated phrase where he talks about habits of the heart. So we train our hearts to be different, and we can. And then finally, Friedrich Nietzsche, of all uh, people, definitely not a believer. And yet he had this phrase that's very famous, a long obedience in the same direction. So when we show mercy intentionally, and it may be hard initially, we slowly will become merciful people. And so here's some recommendations for us. Number one, it's where we are right right now, and it's the main point. But we must be purposeful in pursuing the ministry of mercy. Jesus sought it. He developed eyes for it, for opportunities. We need to practice routine mercy just with each other. Let's start there in our own families, in our own church, in our, in our own Bibles. Practice routine mercy even among those who look very successful and look very well and put together. You know, we can't limit the scope of mercy to just uh, physical needs or just poverty or something like that. But also people are hurting. People are needy in other ways. And so we need to develop eyes that that see those needs, those opportunities. And so we should routinely give people the benefit of the doubt. These are examples of just everyday mercy. We should be patient with the natural weakness of, uh, weaknesses of other people. We should forbear the habits of other people that really drive us crazy, but they're not sinful. We should overlook those. We should be patient with others as they feel, as they fail, giving them time to grow. We should withhold punishment when it's reasonable, especially toward those who are repentant. We should show compassion to those whose lives are damaged even by their own sin. Compassion toward those whose sins we see as gross, as the big sins, and whose lives we know are flawed. Mercy, as James says, triumphs over a spirit of judgment. So let's just practice mercy with one another. And then let's take mercy another step out. Mercy farther outside just their daily life. But like Jesus, let's put ourselves out into the highways and byways where mercy is needed. And some of us in creating our lives, we've incubated ourselves into small, safe circles where there may not be nearly as many opportunities to show mercy. And so we want our homes and our houses and our neighborhoods to be a refuge. And we can be guilty of building this protective cocoon to keep us and our family away from the world's pain and the world's sin and the world's dirt. But one marked by mercy lives in the fray. Lives in the fray where life does become dirty and becomes uncontrolled and messy. One marked by mercy is going to have a messy life in many ways. There's no end of mercies as Wade mentioned. Our lives up in the city and particularly in our neighborhood 
There's no end of opportunities to show mercy where we are. Uh, it comes knocking at our door, literally. And one of our very best early um, relationships was built by someone just down the street. They couldn't pay their water bill, so they had no water. So for two or three months, they sent their the mother sent her kids up to fill up jugs of water at our house a couple times a day. There they were. We got to know them. Mercy comes to us there in the city of Atlanta. In the summer, we probably average five to ten knocks on our door, and many of them are some kind of request for mercy. But what does it look like? If you live in middle-class America, what does it look like if you live in suburban America where every yard is neat and every dog is inside and everybody has health insurance and all the kids are above average? (laughs) What does it look like? How can you be marked by mercy in the burbs? (laughs) And you need to think through this. You need to be creative. I think you have your work cut out for you. It's not coming to knock on on your door. It's not right out in the middle of the street for you. The unwritten rules of the suburbs mitigate against mercy. And so you're going to have to work at it. You can, it's kind of like the rules are you're allowed to talk to a neighbor in the suburbs if he's in the front yard working. But once that garage door goes down and he's inside or he's in the backyard with a privacy fence, he's off limits. Don't bother him there. And if you do see him and start talking to him a little bit, don't go past level two. Keep it pretty safe, you know, about the weather and those kinds of things. Suburbs were built, if you study them historically, were built to capitalize on safety, to ensure privacy, to lock in sameness, and to shield us from ugliness with all the the codes, the building codes. Now, that's not to condemn your living here. The people in the suburbs are just as lost as the people in the cities, and they need you there. They need salt and light in the middle. It's just to say that you're going to have to work even harder at it. It's not going to come to you. You're going to have to pursue it. So I encourage you, get out into public spaces. Think about where your public spaces are, in your neighborhood, the parks and things, or on out in your in your community. Get out into public events, activities. Walk your neighborhood with possible, when possible with your dog or with your baby. That just somehow makes things safe for people to talk to you. Look for spontaneous interaction. Push your way in, even when it's a bit awkward at times. If you're sure that neighbor is ready to flee inside, go ahead and try to catch him and go a little bit deeper with that conversation. Ask questions when you hear bubbles. You know what bubbles are? You know, if you're at a pond or a river or something, you see bubbles come up. It's an indication that there's something down below. People send bubbles up all the time in their conversation that just is a little clue, a little window into their heart that there's something there. And so somebody listen for words that reveal a a need for mercy, for emotional or spiritual mercy. Somebody just says, you know, life's not what it used to be or life's a drag. It's a bubble. Ask a question. Oh, tell me about it. I hate my job. I hate my life. Or I'll be glad when things settle down. Oh, is your life pretty difficult now? Try to ask those questions that keep conversations going that will get you into needs where perhaps you can show mercy and grace. Someone has said that your friend's casual joke about her husband is a deep well. Probe and you will find pain. I don't know about you, I often hear these bubbles and you know what, I really am busy right now. I'm not going to go ahead and ask that next question because it might open up something and then I regret it later. I regret that I didn't go ahead and pursue. Pursue those who you, 
you don't normally have contact with who are in need of mercy in your communities. Especially the Bible talks about showing mercy toward the disadvantaged. And the Bible gives these categories of, of widow, orphan, the poor, the foreigner. There are other types of disadvantaged people as well. More in, in uh, uh, for example, new move-ins. Great opportunity to go greet them, take them something, introduce yourself, open up the open up the relationship. Or immigrants. I don't know if you realize this, but you have more immigrants, first generation immigrants out here in the suburbs than in the city. They don't typically move to the city because they know the city's dangerous. So you're you're way more surrounded by foreigners than we are. They are people who are disadvantaged, who would love to have uh, friendship. So somebody moves in or an immigrant moves into your neighborhood, take them to a plate of food. I guarantee you, to you that plate is going to come back with food on it as well. And you'll have a relationship started that could be an avenue for mercy. So open up those doors intentionally. Be purposeful in pursuing mercy. It's going to take adjustment, moving out into other circles, uh, interacting with other people. Secondly, Accept the high cost of mercy. Plead to God for the courage to walk in mercy's difficult steps. The awkward, messy, embarrassing, costly, time-consuming, sometimes expensive, spontaneous, unplanned opportunities where we can feel overwhelmed or incompetent with all the borders of our privacy violated Accept those costs if you want to become one marked by mercy. We're called to show mercy the way Jesus did. So we should remember what mercy cost Jesus. We've already seen several stories about him. But think about it. Mercy cost him his free time. We've seen that control over his schedule. He almost seemed to ride on the waves, be at the mercy of people as he showed mercy. People grabbing his attention. Mercy is messy and will play havoc with your schedules and your calendars. Mercy cost Jesus an orderly life, a neat and clean life, because he touched lepers. He was received intimately and touched by a prostitute. He was virtually accosted by a demonized man, and he interacted with crazy people. Sometimes his mercy went unappreciated. You remember the ten lepers, nine of the lepers? Mercy cost him sometimes being misunderstood, especially when he uh, showed mercy on the Sabbath. People sometimes, as you show mercy, will accuse you of being soft or being just a a bleeding heart, being foolish. Mercy brought Jesus into our pain and into our suffering. And so he wept for Lazarus and his family. He entered that pain as he showed mercy. Mercy is ready to weep with those who are hurting. And ultimately, his entry into human life to show mercy cost him his life in a merciless death. Count the costs of mercy. Number three, tailor your mercy to the one in need of mercy, not to yourself. In other words, you should think about not showing mercy that I feel comfortable showing, but showing the mercy that this person right there needs. Just a a little specific example of this. When we were in the Philippines, I went through a time, and I've never experienced again, but a time of true depression and uh, the the heart-wrenching type of depression. We discovered later it was probably a result of some medication I was taking. Didn't know that at the time. If you've ever been depressed, 
the, the, the greatest fear is I will always be this way and things will never get better. And I remember a couple of my colleagues coming over and praying with me and really praying over me and praying thoroughly. And then one, some of you know him, Jim O'Neill, um, he asked me, when is it that you struggle the most with your depression? I said, first thing in the morning, 6, 6.30 in the morning. He said, I'm going to come here every morning at 6 o'clock. And so every morning, and he wasn't a morning person, every morning I would wake up and I'd usually go down to my study and I would hear his motorcycle come up and a dog bark as he came up and it would just relieve. He tailored his mercy to me instead of what was comfortable to him and what fit on his schedule. Fourthly, engage in mercy ministry together in community with each other. Maybe even be so radical as to move houses, move into a neighborhood where some other Baraka or other Christians are, that you can work together to show mercy. Mercy is multiplied when it's plural. It's more than multiplied when it's plural, when you're doing it together. Remember, those are just houses you're living in. If you can't imagine leaving this house that's special, you won't remember those houses in heaven. You will remember those people you show mercy to or that come to Christ as a result of mercy. So look for opportunities with others, others in your neighborhood or outside of your neighborhood. Research ministries as a church and works that serve and that you can join and that have practical, open practical needs for you for mercy. Be ready to request and receive mercy. Now, this flips it on, a, on the other side. Not only from God, but from one another. Um, ready to recognize your own need, which is contrary to our uh, standalone independent sense here in the United States. Mercy and pride are incompatible. And so humble yourself so that you can be a receiver of mercy as well. And that will open up opportunities for you to show mercy. There's an interesting passage in Ezekiel, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it's about Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom specifically. And what God sees is Sodom's primary sin. And notice what it is. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor, literally strengthen the hand of the poor. No mercy. And she didn't help the needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Their sin or their heart sin from God's perspective was this callous pride that didn't show mercy toward others. And then that resulted in many other types of sin. Pride and mercy are incompatible. Mercy is readily displaced by our pride. When I'm impressed by my own strength, or I'm impressed by my strength in an area where somebody else is weak, and so I don't feel real sympathetic with it. Or I, I, when, I, when I greet a needy person who shows up at the door and interrupts my schedule with impatience, I forget mercy. When I ignore the gentle rebuke of a loving friend, I forget mercy, my need for mercy. When I hear the the pain in someone else's voice and I don't go ahead and probe, I forget the importance of mercy. Or when I rest in my little formulas for a successful life, i got to get to church at least three times a month and I've got to uh, pray three times a day and i got to exercise three times a week and i got to 
read the Bible three times, three chapters of the Bible a day and eat three square meals a day. I don't know. And think that somehow that can protect us from harm or bring God's blessing. I forget mercy, that everything we receive good from God is a result of his mercy and grace. So we need to throw out those self-sufficient, can-do attitudes and adopt the posture of desperate need for mercy that God loves and that then will open the portals of our lives to others for others to enter and then give us opportunity to show mercy to them. To, to believers and non-believers alike. And so number six, while we don't show mercy merely as a means of proclaiming the gospel, meeting mercy needs can give us the passport to discuss spiritual need. It can open those doors. Deeds of mercy can unlock words of truth. Or as I heard someone say, good deeds earn goodwill that opens doors for the good news. So mercy shown at the front door can often lead into these gospel relationships and provide pathways as you as you minister to people at that deeper level or even receive their mercy. It can then open up opportunity for deeper conversations, pathways for gospel transmission. And so while other people might refute our beliefs, our words of truth, they can't refute our deep expressions of mercy and compassion. We need to surprise people with kindness. Good deeds earn goodwill that will open doors for the good news. And then one you might not expect is join unbelievers in works, in their works of mercy. Realize that there are a lot of unbelievers out there and groups and organizations that in some sense, in perfect sense, show mercy. And I think it's an expression of the, the, the image of God working within them, giving them the sense that I need to help others. And so we can join in their efforts to show mercy and thus build deep relationship with them. A passage that stood out to me where we live quite a bit, there's actually a couple of passages like this, but Romans 12 verse 17 says, Give thought to do what is honorable or what is lovely in the sight of all. Give thought to what forms of mercy and good works even unbelievers value. And honor those and join those. And as we do that, by joining them, we'll we'll relate to them in a deeper way. Instead of just going to a person and sharing the gospel, first of all, you're working together on something that you both value. And in that process, as they see, well, you're a believer who really means it, you may very well earn those opportunities to share the gospel with those people. Finally, when you find yourself running short of mercy... Return to points number one and number two. (laughs) That we are desperately daily in need of mercy and mercy begets mercy. Do a gospel double check when your mercy muscle gets tired and you start pulling back. It's the gospel that receives the depths of God's, uh, that reveals the depths of God's mercy to us and it's the gospel that empowers us to show extravagant costly mercy to others. Again, Oskinis says, whereas greed seeks less than justice for others, mercy seeks more. Its character is to, to give beyond reason, beyond justice, beyond expectation. Mercy is our lifeblood. Without it, 
received, we would die. We would die uh, an eternal death. But when we receive that mercy, it motivates us and it pushes us out to show mercy to others. So let's make it part of our lives. Let's make it part of our individual lives, part of our family lives. May your kids see mercy being shown by you, even if it costs some time spent with them. Take them in those, uh, in those works of mercy as well. Make it part of your life as a congregation. Organize yourselves in different ways or if you live together with others, work together to show mercy. Let's aim for the day when our friends, when our neighbors, the neighbors of this community, but the neighbors that live around you say, there goes a merciful human being. Let's pray. Father, for many of us, mercy does not come naturally, and so we confess We confess to you those times when we are so busy that those mercy needs around us become invisible. We uh, we confess when we hoard unused things and stuff so that we lock up resources that could be used to show mercy to those who are in need. We confess when we worship safety and privacy and neat lives that keep us from reaching out, we ask for your mercy. We ask that we confess those times when we don't move into people's lives and ask those personal, maybe awkward questions and ferret out those needs for mercy. And we thank you, Father, that that wasn't the case for you, that you sought us and found us and showered us with mercy. And may that that daily receiving mercy, Father, be that which would change our hearts and mold us into becoming people of mercy, people marked by mercy, people who reflect Jesus Christ and the way he lived his life, that we can be your representatives here on earth. And Father, I pray this in Jesus' name, the one who showed us the greatest mercy of all. Amen.